0: We today will pick up the study we began last September of the book of Revelation. This will carry us through Palm Sunday, and we get to the fun part today. If you were here this past fall, we spent... Uh, a few months looking at the letters to the churches which comprise essentially uh, the first few chapters of the book of Revelation. Now, these churches were churches, historic, real churches, that existed in what would be for us today modern-day Turkey, and they were designed to encourage them Uh, in the midst of growing persecution that was coming their way and isolation from a secular culture, but to also occasionally admonish them for some things that they weren't doing well and then to challenge them to remain obedient and faithful as things didn't get better, as things got worse. Now, as these troubles were being spoken of, in particular the, the growing push to worship the emperor in Rome as a god, we begin to understand that they are being shared with those seven churches in the shrinking shadow of an approaching final conflict with a fallen world. And it is to that final conflict that we come today in the remainder of our study of the book of Revelation. That final conflict, that final chapter of human history is known as something called the Great Tribulation, and everybody hold your breath. It is a period of time in which both Pastor Micah, who teaches at the Ridgeview campus, and I believe that the church will be fully present for in other words, we do not believe that there will be a physical removal of the church until the second coming of Christ at the end of the book of tribulation. Now, what that has done effectively for some of you all is blow your stinking minds. Because that's not something that you've ever heard taught. Now, I will tell you, it's, it's not and nor has it ever been a secret with me. I have held this position... Since the spring of 1987, I had to write a position paper on my core theology when I was in college. I am not uh, a religion major in college. I was a broadcast journalism major in college, but I had a religion minor, and so when I took my doctrines class, I had to, at the end of that uh, class, write out my theological positions. I still, like a nerd, I still have that paper over in my office. I have two papers from college. Uh, in my office. One, I kept because it was so bad that I can just pull it out. Look how stupid your dad was. I can pull that out. But but this I have kept just as a way of kind of checking in. And there have been some of those positions that I held as a 21-year-old that have shifted a little bit. But one that is not is this. I have believed um, that the best understanding of Scripture for all of these years has been that the church is present through uh, the tribulation. Now, I share this with you Not because I have the least bit of desire that you all believe like I believe. I mean, anybody who would look at the book of Revelation and say, with 1,000% certainty, I know exactly what's going on here, and I know how everything should be timed out, honestly is too arrogant for me to have a conversation with. You have to hold this kind of stuff loosely. I'm not interested in you all having a perfect reflection of my theology with all of this. In fact, some of my best friends uh, are people who disagree with me. One of the sweetest ladies I've ever known, member of Blue Valley for many years, named Wilma Mulder, 100 pounds soaking wet. 100 pounds soaking wet. She's been with Jesus now for a few years, when I would teach this on Wednesday night or Sunday night Bible studies, she would come up to me afterwards and she'd point her tiny little finger way up in my face and she would say, when the rapture comes and I am taken, when I get to heaven, I will tell Jesus to go back and get you because you didn't know any better. I mean, that's, that's, that's what she would say, I kid you not. I kid you not. I miss her. Man, I miss her. If, if she were here right now and I was teaching this, she'd be sitting right there and she'd be going like this all the way through it. I am not interested. I am not interested in you all believing like I believe with this. But I am very interested in you understanding that in spite of the fact that you in the pew and most congregations might not be aware of it. Conservative scholarship, as it looks at the book of Revelation specifically and the end times in general, have come up with a handful of credible ways where you can hold to the authority of Scripture, the sufficiency of Scripture, the inerrancy of Scripture, meaning that it is without error, and kind of see a way which all of this plays out. I think that the best way to do that is to see the church present through this it's not been a secret I've long believed this the committee that called me here 14 years ago knew this we knew this about Micah it's not a secret so why am I bringing it up today for a few reasons number one you need to know my compass point as I go through the book of Revelation when when you go through Revelation whether you believe this or not or have known this or not your compass point has been the timing of the rapture that physical removal of the church and so, if your true north compass point is a physical removal of the church prior to the great tribulation, you're going to read the book of Revelation in a very specific kind of way. But if you believe that that rapture, that physical removal of the church doesn't happen until the second coming of Jesus Christ, you're going to read the book a different way. So I'm telling you my compass point, not going to bring it up over and over again. I'm just telling you my compass point because I will teach you and bring you through this book in a way that might not be um, familiar to you and it might seem different. You just need to know what my what my compass point is but the the next thing that i would say to you by means of why we're bringing this up today is because the text kind of demands it when you get to revelation chapter four you see a summons of jesus for john to come up to heaven to see the rest of what will transpire the future for uh the the human history come up here he says we'll see that in just a minute and people have taught over the years that that is a reference to the rapture. You Honestly, you don't find that much anymore. Um, even with people who believe in a physical removal of the church prior to the Great Tribulation, you don't hear that much anymore um, in, in, in academic circles. But some of you may have been waiting for this to be rapture day when I get to Revelation chapter 4, and it's not going to be for me. However, I will tell you, that Revelation 4 and 5 are the most important chapters in the book. And we're going to see why in just a moment, why they are the most important chapters in the book. And they may very well be the most encouraging chapters for a church going through difficult times. And by our church, I don't mean just Blue Valley, I mean the church going through difficult times that exist in all of Scripture. So I hope you have found Revelation chapter 4 and your copy of God's Word. Why don't you stand as we honor its reading today. I'll begin in verse 1 of Revelation chapter 4. After this, I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven... And the first voice, which I had heard speaking to me like a trumpet, said, come up here and I will show you what must take place after this. Now, this is not foolproof, but many of you probably have a red letter Bible. Those letters are in red. It means that we believe that this voice that was back in chapter 1 is speaking here and it was the voice of Christ. Chapter Verse 2, at once I was in the Spirit and behold, a throne stood in heaven with one seated on the throne and he who sat There had the appearance of jasper and carnelian. And around the throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald. Around the throne were 24 thrones. And seated on the thrones were 24 elders clothed in white garments with golden crowns on their heads The third living creature with the face of a man, and the fourth living creature like an eagle in flight, and the four living creatures, each of them with six wings are full of eyes all around and within, and day and night, they never cease to say, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. And whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to Him who is seated on the throne, who lives forever and ever, the twenty-four elders fall down before Him who is seated on the throne and worship Him who lives forever and ever. And they cast their crowns before the throne, saying, Worthy are You, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power, for You created all things, and by Your will they existed and were created. Amen stinking men you may be seated now here's an important question to ask how does looking to the final future conflict and persecution of the church help the real historical churches in the book of revelation navigate their own conflict and persecution? And while we're at it, how does it help us looking ahead to what will come, navigate our own uncertain times? The answer is very simple, and this is the most important thing to hear today. It confronts us with ultimate reality. What is ultimate about conflict and persecution and suffering? isn't the conflict and persecution and suffering. God is what is ultimate. God is the main thing. That's the reason that John is summoned to heaven and given a visionary account of history's final day. It wasn't to satisfy his curiosity. It wasn't to satisfy our curiosity 2,000 years later. It was to say, John, let the churches know that are facing the most difficult time for my name that they have ever faced, that they can do it. They can do it. They can remain obedient. And they can remain faithful if they remember what really is true. And John has ultimately shown two things that help us here today. First, we are told through his vision in times of trouble, remember the throne. If you're a note taker, that's your first thing to fill in. In times of trouble, remember the throne. When John is swept up into heaven to be given this vision, he describes for us when he arrives seven sights. He sees a throne with one seated on it, he sees a rainbow encircling. The throne. He sees 24 elders seated on 24 thrones around the throne. He sees flashes of lightning and the accompanying peals and rumbles of thunder. He sees seven torches of fire, which are the seven spirits of God. He sees a sea of glass before the throne, and on each side of the throne, he sees four living creatures. Now, first things first, very important here. We aren't meant to understand that this is actually what heaven looks like. This is a mistake that we make when we read a book like Revelation. We think sometimes that John's being shown like a PowerPoint presentation. Now, John, when you get to heaven, click, this is what the throne's going to look like. And click, you'll notice these really weird-looking animals down front. Don't worry about that. We'll get to that later. That's, That's not what John is being told. He is not being told the physical representation of what heaven looks like. He is instead being taught through imagery. He is being taught. The imagery he is being shown is not designed to show him sights that are meant to impress. The imagery is designed to ground him in truth that is meant to encourage him. Ground him in truth. So let's interpret the imagery and experience for ourselves the encouragement John is being given here. Now, central to the vision. And by that, I mean at the very center of everything that John is being shown is God seated on His throne. Now, we are not To be honest, uh, told explicitly that it is God, but that is the obvious conclusion that we are meant to reach, that at the center of everything is one seated on the throne. And remembering that this is meant to teach, to instruct, to ground in truth, we are being shown, John is being shown the universality of the rule of God. Everything else in the vision, in fact, everything else in the rest of the book, is oriented by that, by the fact that God rules over all. And the images that John is shown to describe the one on the throne are meant to communicate, first, His majesty and His glory. The stones that are mentioned... Are less important to ponder as to what is Carnelian, we don't know for certain, or what Jasper looks like. And instead we are to ponder the brilliant splendor that their presence invokes. We are to see, in other words, that that God is, is majestic. To the point that it stretches the capacity of human beings to be able to describe it. Don't dissect everything to the nth degree in the book of Revelation. Relax, step back from it and take it in. And John doing that is taking in, stretching his language, the glory and the majesty of the one seated on the throne. And taking that image in and taking that majesty in would have been perspective altering. For someone like John, leading churches and those churches themselves that are going through incredibly difficult times. We are so used to the church being essentially ubiquitous in America. And and, and by that I mean that you can go into almost any city in the United States and you will be able to find a church or a remnant of one. There are millions of people who at least claim the name of Jesus. But at this time in human history they numbered in the thousands they numbered in the thousands and they are being told that in their minds the most powerful being in the universe Caesar is demanding that he be worshipped as a god and the answer that they could or the, the conclusion that they could very easily reach is well Why wouldn't we? And John and the churches are being shown the reason why is because of this. This this is worthy of worship. This God is worthy of our attention. Let me ask you, if you had a God fantasy draft, are you going to draft the guy that looks like you, that sounds like you, bleeds like you, and dies like you as your God? Or are you going to pick The one seated on the throne whose majesty stretches imagination. You're going to pick if you've got any sense. You're going to pick that God. This image being shown John is to let his readers know that they have nothing to fear. This is their God. In fact, the first three verses of Revelation 4 give us the controlling vision of the entire book in spite of the chaos God is in control in spite of everything that's going to scare us as we go through this book God is in control and at the same time that that vision of God being at the center a God whose majesty stretches human imagination being at the center should be the controlling vision of our lives and the rest of the imagery reveals the extent of that control First, we're shown a rainbow encircling the throne, demonstrating, I think, His reign over the tribulations that we face in the tribulation to come. Why do I say that? Well, when does a rainbow show up in Scripture? It shows up at the end of God's judgment. In the book of Genesis, when a flood took everybody on earth except the people that God set apart for Himself and preserved through, didn't take out of, preserved through, the flood, seeing as a Jew, the rainbow would have immediately caused him to reflect on the fact that even in the midst of God's judgment, he shows mercy to his people. So it's telling us, I believe, that that this tribulation which we tend to make Satan the boss of, that is to come, is, is a misconstrued idea. Satan's not in charge of anything in the troubled times to come. God is. God reigns over tribulation. And then we see the 24 elders seated on the 24 thrones. They are meant to demonstrate God's reign over the church. Now, there is some debate, I'm not going to lie to you, as to what the 24 actually represent. But in general, the consensus is that they represent the 12 tribes of Israel the people that God set apart for Himself to do His merciful saving work through in the Old Testament that culminated ultimately in the reign and rule of Christ as personified in the establishment of the church through the twelve apostles. So taken and put together, they represent the redeemed people of God throughout all ages. And there was a, a sense where somebody in the first century undergoing this persecution could think, well, Caesar must be Lord over the church because he can take our lives. And this vision saying, huh, uh, time out, time out. The government is not the Lord over the church. The government does not rule over the church. God rules and reigns over church. His people. And finally, the image of the sea of glass and the four living creatures demonstrate God's reign over the entire created order. We are meant to take away from those images that the entire universe is held together, which Colossians chapter 1 tells us is true, is held together by God Himself. There would be a tendency to think that that universe was spiraling out of control. As we go through the judgments that are to come, many of them have, have created manifestations, earthquakes and, and, and fire and things like that. And it would be easy for the people viewing all of these things to think, well, creation's out of control. Uh-uh. Uh-uh. Creation serves the purposes of God the seas which in the ancient mind represented chaos and evil are subdued under God's feet and the created order itself represented by the four living creatures that's what they are meant to represent the 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 creation itself all serve the divine will because God rules over creation so God reigns he reigns over tribulation he reigns over the church he reigns over literally the entire Universe And our perseverance during times of trouble depends absolutely upon us remembering that. In fact, our ability to navigate trouble when it comes to us is in direct proportion to the depth of our conviction that God reigns over all things. If we do not believe that, we're going to hand ring like the rest of the world. But if we know what's true, if we are swept up into ultimate reality, our freak-out quotient will be very low. I love what Pastor Jonathan said this past fall when we were considering all of the reasons to worry that our church had, pandemics and elections and all of that, and we were seeing that worry manifest itself. Pastor Jonathan, and I know you think he's a good guy and a really easygoing, but he'll cut you. All right? Here's what he said. Here's what he said. He says it's small God syndrome. It's small God syndrome. Why was he saying that? Because he understands the controlling reality of all things that God rules and reigns over trouble, over the church, over everything, which brings my mind to Iram Judson which happens to me all the time. If you've not heard me speak of Adoniram Judson, you must be new. And if you have heard me speak of Adoniram Judson, listen to me anyway. Adoniram Judson was the first American missionary, and he spent most of his life in modern-day Myanmar, known then as Burma. To fulfill God's purposes in his life, he endured unimaginable hardship and loss of the kind that you would think I was making it up if it were not a matter of a historical record. One of those records is a book called To the Golden Shore, written by a man named Courtney Anderson. It's in-arms Judson's life story. It's in our church library. For instance, Judson married his first wife, Anne, on February the fifth, 1812, and 12 days later got on a little boat, barely beating the start of the War of 1812, out of America to head for the mission field in Burma. Anne bore three children to Adoniram. All of them died. The first baby, nameless, was born dead as they sailed from their waypoint in India to their final destination in Burma. The second child, Roger Williams Judson, lived 17 months and then died. The third, Maria Elizabeth Butterworth Judson, lived to be only two, but outlived her mother, Judson's wife, Anne, by six months. And so after giving up everything to go, he had less than nothing after a few short years. He would lose another wife and more children to death while himself facing imprisonment and torture for the sake of the gospel. And of all that... He said this, he penned this, we don't have many of his writings because in a fit to purge himself of human pride, he burned at one point almost everything that was attributed to him. But we do have this, he wrote, If I had not felt certain that every additional trial was ordered by infinite love and mercy, I could not have survived my accumulated sufferings. In times of trouble, Adoniram Judson remembered the throne of God. He is at the center of it all ruling over it all which then leads us to the next thing the final thing that we're to pick up from revelation four. in times of trouble remember to worship not remember to worry but in times of trouble remember to worship look again at the last part of verse 8, as the four living creatures cry out, Holy, Holy, Holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. Verse 9, and whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to Him who is seated on the throne, which we are told in verse 8 is all the time, then the 24 elders fall down. So they're doing this all the time as well before Him who is seated on the throne and they worship Him who lives forever and ever and they cast their crowns Before the throne saying, worthy are you our Lord and God to receive glory and honor and power for you created all things and by your will they existed and were created. The vision that John is being given is that of ultimate reality. And the ultimate reality is that the entire universe, remember what these images represent, the entire universe, all of the church, fulfill their purpose when they give testimony to the worth of God. That is ultimate reality. In fact, it tells us that the church and all of the universe only finds its purpose when it is laying itself before the throne of God in worship. This is true of creation, but this is especially true of God's people. They fall down before Him. They cast their crowns. Note the intensity with which they do all of this. They are giving up everything. Now, there's ample New Testament teaching that show us that the church will rule with God for eternity, and the image of the 24 elders and the 24 thrones carries that teaching through to the last book of the Bible. But the picture of the elders casting their crowns at God's feet shows us that the blessing of ruling and the blessing of reigning is not something that is an end to ourselves, but it is an opportunity for us to give final glory to God. The elders are showing, in light of who God is, in light of His surpassing worth, that we are nothing, that we are owed nothing, and that He is owed everything. As we rule and reign, we rule and reign as His emissary. We rule according to His will and not our own. Our thrones do not serve us. Our thrones serve the kingdom of God. So our only purpose is to worship the one who is on the throne. That's the only reason any of us exist. And I've noticed that, that troubled times will tend to press people down one of two paths. The path of bitterness or the path of ultimate joy. The path of bitterness is the path of entitlement. We begin to feel that God owes us something and we believe that when He fails us we are free to abandon Him. But when we live life with a vision of His majestic and brilliant sovereignty, we are able, like Job, to say, The Lord gives, and the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And in doing so, find ultimate joy by fulfilling our purpose to give Him the glory that He is due. John and the beleaguered churches of Revelation 1-3 through Are given a peek at that which shapes ultimate reality in both good times and in bad for the purpose of giving them a proper orienting perspective on the trials that they and we will face in the ordinary course of living and the ultimate trial to come. Now, folks, I have no idea if we are living in the end times. No one does. Unless, of course, they're trying to sell a book and then they know absolutely. I have no idea whether we are or aren't. But I know that we live in times of sorrow. And I know that we live in times of, of fear and unprecedented uncertainty. So Revelation 4 speaks to us today, whether we're in the end times or not. And it tells us that in troubled times, we must remember the throne and remember to worship the one who is seated on it. The question is how. That's what everybody wants to know. Okay, good information. Thanks for telling me. How do I do that? How do I do that? Well, actually, Scripture tells us how to do that. Paul wrote it for us. And the most important passage of Scripture for me in the year previous that helped sustain me and buoy me through that difficult time, Colossians chapter 3. Colossians 3.1 says, If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above and not on things on earth. And then a verse I did not include for you have died. This is who you are. You have died. And your life is hidden with Christ and God. We have to learn to put our brains there. When we feel it, and we all feel it, don't we? Oh, boy, I'm starting to get worried. When we feel that coming, it drives us to Scripture. Scripture. If then you've been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. And folks, when your head is in your social media page or your news feed or your favorite cable channel or your favorite theological gripe session constantly, then you're going to have a very hard time contemplating the ultimate reality of the rule and reign of God you are going to have a very hard time worshiping. Let me put it as plainly as I can. When you are allowing reality to be shaped by the trouble you can see, you're going to have a very difficult time trusting the God you can't. I'll say it one more time. When you are allowing reality to be shaped by the trouble you can see, you're going to have a very difficult time trusting in the God you can't. At these troubled times, our world needs to see the church worshiping, not hand-wringing. Stop it! Stop it! Stop it! All of us, stop it! We no longer need to show the world the worry that they already have. Our role is to set our mind on Christ and His rule in our hearts and in our world. And when that reality begins to shape us, even in the midst of difficulty, and yes, even suffering, even final suffering if we are living in that age, we'll be given to worship and not worry. We are going to see the church through the book of Revelation. And every time we see them, they're worshiping. They're throwing themselves at God, crying out to Him. For their perseverance and if we'll do that we will bear testimony to a world of hope and things that will fail them time and time again as to where ultimate hope and ultimate joy really lie at the feet of the one who rules over all things let's go to the lord in prayer